This is Oliver Tapley, and I'm about to embark on the fourth and last discussion uh, with Lorna Hardwick on the subject of what is translation. And our fourth question is, who translates and who for? We've already recognised that there's a wide variety of answers, really, to this, both to both parts of that question about who does the translating and who does the receiving of the translating. And actually, once you recognise that huge variety and that unstable variety, then that clarifies quite a lot of issues that have been sometimes treated as if they're more thorny than they are. For example, if the translation is for students of languages, Latin and Greek, or indeed modern languages, then they want an aid to how to construe. They want an aid to how to take the original source language into pieces and understand it. And so that has necessarily, that kind of translation has to be done by an expert, has to be done by somebody who knows the source language really well. Um, but that actually is a rather niche market. It's important for publishers, but it's, one wouldn't want to say that that is the, the chief raison d'etre for translation. It certainly isn't. Students of literature, though, that's interesting because that's not so clear. And as long as students of literature have in mind that they are studying the literature of the, of the source text, but they are also inevitably to some degree studying the language and poetry of the target text of the translator, it's a rather different situation with students of literature because they're not actually using their translation to construe the original, but they are using their translation for the interpretation of the original. And so they're both dealing with studying the language and poetry and meaning of the source text, but at the same time need to recognize that they're also studying the translator and the resources of the target language. That came up earlier with the Browning version, for example, with Robert Browning. You're, you're studying both the Browning and you're studying the Aeschylus. And thank goodness we had the Aeschylus to explain what Browning was doing. But students, I mean, we university people tend to think in terms of students, but students are very far from the only public, and especially this would be true for theatre. The public for theatre translations are both readers and those people who go and hear them in the theatre. Yes, I think where the interesting things really start to happen is as soon as you start to move away from a rather narrowly or tightly focused target readership or audience and translators start to work with the aim of actually um, getting the ancient text out into, into the wider world. And we talked a little bit at the beginning, didn't we, about the way in which translation actually has a, a strong force for you know preserving and life enhancing through the generations through through the ages and the different ways in which translators have approached going beyond the charmed circle of, of readers has produced some not only some interesting work but also i think some interesting criticism and one piece which i came across the other day i thought was quite revealing in in this respect it's a a review um, in the 1930s and published in The Spectator by the poet Louis McNeese, who was also a classicist, a lecturer at the University of Birmingham, a translator. He did an Agamemnon for the stage and then eventually became a BBC radio producer, doing a lot of interesting work, in, including with classical material. So in a sense, both from the point of view of scholarship and of practice, he had a number of different perspectives. And in The Spectator, magazine in 1935, he published a review of Gilbert Murray's translation of Aeschylus's play, The Seven Against Thebes. Murray was a most distinguished 
a classical scholar of his generation. He was professor of Greek at Glasgow at the age of 23. He then subsequently came to Oxford as Regis Professor, and he did a substantial number of translations of Greek plays, many of which were performed, including on the London stage. One of them even caused a traffic jam in the West End. <laughs> so he was very widely influential, very popular. His the printed versions of his translations sold very widely. Anyway, this is what McNeese wrote. He said, Professor Murray is our leading Hellenist, and no one would impugn either his scholarship or his enthusiasm. But as a verse translator of the Greek dramatists, he is, though readable, neither a good translator nor a good poet. That he is readable is shown by his sales. Those who have a little Greek will most likely want a fairly exact crib. This Professor Murray does not provide. Those who have no Greek will want either a version which puts across the original or something which will stand on its own feet as a work in English. Professor Murray, I take it, wishes to put across his original. He takes liberties not for their own sake, but in order to save qualities in the original, which he regards as more important than word-for-word -word accuracy. And McNeese then went on to give his own recipe for a successful translation. A translation should start from the Greek, preferably line for line. Diction and rhythm will then differentiate. He then thought that the poetry could be infused. So he said, we improve both rhythm and diction and so make the whole more real. And then comes his key line. This is perhaps when the non-scholar may translate better than the scholar. And his idea was that in the case of scholars like Gilbert Murray, their sense of the Greek and the importance of the Greek was so much at the forefront of their mind that they couldn't really hear or feel how the English would impact on their readership or on the spectators. And I think it's really interesting that in the mid-1930s, McNeese is actually foreshadowing some of the methods that are used by modern poets and dramatists when they're working for the theatre, that they are using a line-by-line -line translation prepared, sometimes specially for them, in the case of, of Frank McGuinness, for example, who, who commissions those, or in the case of people like Seamus Heaney using an existing close translation prepared by a scholar, Heaney has used Jeb and Lloyd-Jones, and then they are themselves then rewriting that translation in terms of the poetry in the case of Heaney, or in the case of McGuinness, who's primarily a dramatist, in terms of the dramatic effect. Now, whether or not, as McNeese suggested, the non-scholar may translate better than the scholar is a very interesting point. It raises all kinds of questions about who makes judgments and on what criteria and what the eventual impact is. Mm. And I think McNeese brings out very well the kinds of really interactive processes that are involved. Yes, I, I mean, I'd hate to think that it's inevitable that a scholar can't translate as well as a poet, but it's indubitably very often mostly the case. And uh, most of the 20th century, very few poets actually tried their hand at Greek tragedy, and those that did tended to know the Greek, and Magnesia yes. would be outstanding yes. example, H.D. Hilda Doolittle, the American yes. poet, would be, yes. would be another. But in the, since about 1980, yes. uh, there's been, I suppose it is partly the feeling that you don't need to know the Greek, it might even be an advantage not to know the Greek, that has liberated so many poets to translate Greek tragedy. There's been the most extraordinary um, explosion. Of dramatists today who are, who are working with Greek tragedy, um, I, mean, I can only think of two 
who really worked directly from the Greek, which yeah. would be Tony Harrison and Anne Carson. Yes, be... uh, they do both uh, definitely work with with the Greek text. But uh, if you think of all the people who tried their hand, I mean, as well as the, what I think of as the, the three H's, Harrison, Heaney and Hughes, I mean, all those... Uh, he greatly regrets that he doesn't know Greek, but he yes, doesn't know yes. Greek. And there are people like Tom Paul in Simon Armitage, you mentioned Frank McGuinness. Yes. Um, Anne Carson is the exception, a poet in her own right who, who also translates Greek tragedy. I, I would say that her translations of tragedy are not as good as her translations of lyric poetry, which is interesting. Mm. And she is, above all, a lyric, a lyric poet. Mm. I mean, that raises a very interesting question, whether being able to translate poetry always necessarily aligns with being able to translate drama mm -hmm. as a whole, even though the drama in, in includes theatre poetry. But I think I want to make a point that perhaps some critics would think was slightly controversial. In some people have tried to categorise translations, particularly of tragedy, in terms of whether the new writer is working directly themselves from the Greek or not. I think equally important is the question of whether they are working to provide a, a text or whether they're working to provide something which is going to be then immediately staged and whether that's in their mind because I think that's where the differences come up. I mean Seamus Heaney for instance who although he knows Latin doesn't know Greek but he is sufficient of a, of a literary scholar to be able to work with commentaries. I mean, he can work with, with Jeb's translation. He clearly is very sensitive to the formal elements in Greek tragedy and, and, and works very closely at that. But he produces a text which is, I mean, it's a text which is absolutely redolent of theatre poetry, isn't it? And he doesn't then work with the director um, to create the staging. Whereas somebody like McGuinness, for instance, who, who doesn't work directly with the Greek, who commissions a close translation from usually somebody who both knows Greek and knows a little bit about, about theatre. And he, McGuinness then works with that to create an acting script, which is quite spare, quite, quite spartan. And that leaves a lot of room for the director, um, Jonathan Kent, in the case of McGuinness's very successful Hecuba, and not only the director, the, um, the set designer, the actors, to actually work with that to express in terms of physicality, in terms of the semiotics, the non-verbal aspects of theatre, so that there is a total theatre which actually translates in as a collective effort that Greek play to the, to the stage. Yeah, there's a remarkable range, isn't there, there? Because, I mean, uh, Heaney, for example, when he produced his uh, Burial at Thebes, uh, it was for the Abbey Theatre, but he had absolutely nothing to do with the production whatsoever. He didn't go to any rehearsals. It, simply his, his role stopped with the provision of the text. At uh, the other extreme, and, and Frank McGuinness is a very interesting one, but even more extreme in many ways is Tony Harrison. His Oresteia, 1981 Oresteia, which he specifies in the published text as being for male actors wearing masks. And certainly he was very much present at the rehearsals. I know some people felt that he actually had more to do with the production than, than the director, Peter Hall. Totally engaged with its theatricality. And so... Our temptation to, to lump these together and just say, oh, there's been this extraordinary explosion of uh, poets translating Greek plays, uh, breaks down into a very fascinating range 
of different um, roles. Yes, absolutely. And I think it also it, it interrogates the big notion about who is the translator. It seems to me as soon as you've got something which is actually going to be staged, you have got a number of translators who are in various ways translating for and to the stage and what the spectators eventually experience and bring their own interpretation and, and reactions to, to bear on is going to be very much a composite effort mm. which it's extremely hard to capture in what may be a published text yes. which may be not actually the text as it was played on particular occasions. Yes and the actual performance is, is some Same, kind of multiple, has, has almost multiple authorship mm. and, and it brings up this uh, something that's often said is as long as it works it's good I, I think there's a lot to that. It's got to work. It, you, you spoke before about the effective dimension, that it has to work on the audience. But it does need a bit of unpacking. I mean, who does it work for? Does it, is it because, does it work because it puts bums on seats? Well, that might be just because it's got um, 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 Jude Law in it. Um, or, or does it work with the critics? Does it work with the wider public? Does it work with the discerning, the informed public? Does it work intellectually? Does it work emotionally? Does it manage to achieve some kind of interaction of those and, and many of the answers to this these questions won't actually just be a matter of the, the translator the person who provides the text it's quite possible I suppose one has to say it's quite possible for a rather mediocre translation to be a great success in the theatre and it's quite possible for a marvellous translation to be a flop because as you're saying so many more people are involved in it than that uh, it almost leads I don't know it leads me to this sort of worrying feeling does the treatment of the original matter at all is I think it does, because that's where I, I want to go back to what we were saying at the beginning about the way in which translation is actually part of the vital, the living process in the dialogue between the ancient material and modern sensibilities, whether there are literary, theatrical, readers, spectators, writers, and so on. I mean, the translation critic Octavio Paz has developed, I think, quite an interesting slant on the relationship between translation and writing as twin processes, as interacting processes, rather than being things that are, are, are thought of as opposed. And I think we're getting some very interesting examples of that, actually in modern poetry, where a number of people, um, including Heaney to some extent, certainly including the fellow Irish poet Michael Longley, are actually interspersing translations of ancient texts, in Longley's case particularly Homer, also Ovid, uh, with, with new poems. And that I think has a, a number of interesting implications. In the first place, it's one way of actually making the ancient poetic text live in the imaginations of the readers. And in his poem, um, Spider-Woman, Longley, for instance, says Arachne, the Spider-Woman figure, started with Ovid and finishes with me. Mm. That's the very first line of the poem. So immediately, you know, the modern reader may know nothing whatsoever about Ovid. It's aligning Ovid and Longley in some kind of poetic relationship. And then in the first part of that poem, he gives a very close translation of the Arachne sequence from Ovid's Metamorphoses, where um, Arachne is transformed into a spider. 
and he goes into this process you know in, in very great detail and then he um, elaborates in the rest of the poem on his relationship with that spider as a kind of metaphor for the relationship between the modern poet you know and, and, and the ancient work now somebody who's reading that poem doesn't actually have to know they're of it but they will get of it in the first few lines of that that poem and that i think is very interesting development because it's a contrast with the ways in which for example ezra pound or t.s Eliot, you know earlier in, in the in the 20th century included extracts from classical material in their poetry and were rather sort of playing on the reader's ability to make the associations now longley is, is not doing that he is including the um, his own he was classically trained so he's including his his own translation as part of his poetic creation and all the reader actually has to grasp there's some sort of dialogue between Ovid and Longley going on in that I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to hazard the generalization that at least in our era there will never be a good translation made by somebody who regards the source text as something that is dead or as something that is a mere object and only then will the translation come alive so there has to be some kind of sense of if you like, almost of, of gratitude, some kind of sense of, of something warm passing between the translator and the work that's being translated. And that, that says something perhaps about the value of translation, that, that the translation finds the life in literature, literature that people might be tempted to say is past, dead, irrelevant, People speak of dead languages, but actually, these as long as these translations can be made, these languages are not dead. They were spoken by people who are now dead, but the same would be true of Shakespeare yeah. or Chekhov. I think that's true. That, that resonates very closely with the first stage in the model that George Steiner developed for relationship between source texts and translated texts. Now, his first stage was that there had to be trust, that there was a trust that there was something in the source text that was actually worth relating to, worth doing something with. And he then developed that model using a metaphor of violence. Something was then seized from the source text. And not everybody would follow that particular model. I think I, mean, I mentioned earlier some people would regard that much more as a, a negotiation, a conversation. But Steiner's third stage after the, after the violence was that the source material was then in some way embedded in the new poetic approach in the target language. And that then led to a fourth stage where there was a high degree of literary and aesthetic excellence, where there was some kind of reciprocal relationship between the two. And in the case of um, you know, a very good translation, really of, of whatever kind, depending on, on, on its particular purpose, I think you do get a sense in which the ancient text is, you know, is infusing energy and sensitivity into the modern readership and modern spectators, but also that the modern readers and spectators are being led to value and indeed to think worthy of criticism what is going on in, in the ancient text, uh -huh. have an understanding of how yes. it fits together. That makes sense of why so often in this context there is the image of going, going down to the underworld of the journey down to visit the ghosts, to learn from the ghosts, and to come back again with a new strength, a new vitality, a new warmth that is brought back from the dead. 
And maybe on some level, what we value in translation is the sense that it defies death. I think it's interesting how the extent to which that that particular metaphor and that particular process is an integral part of the work of a number of modern writers. I and mean, Derek Walcott has done it. Seamus Heaney has made a direct translation from Virgil, you know, of that of a particular underworld episode. And that's something which people return, which poets return to, partly because of the poetic authority of the ancient text, but also because of the importance of everything that that represents and that it resonates with in continuing experience, in continuing human sensitivity and artistic creativity.